This podcast is brought to you by The Dental Diet, the surprising link between your teeth, real food and life-changing natural health by Dr. Stephen Lin. It's available now and for more information, go to drstephenlin.com. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Stephen Lin. Trained at University of Sydney in a background of biomedical science, Stephen works with a focus on the systemic effects of oral disease in his dental practice. A TEDx speaker and passionate health communicator, he is working to merge the dental and nutritional fields with the publication of The Dental Diet, an exploration of evolutionary diet, genetics and nutritional medicine, due for release in 2018. Based on the pioneering work of Dr. Weston A. Price, Dr. Lin explores the link between modern industrialised food, dental disease and every other degenerative health problem known to mankind. You can follow him for dental, nutritional and lifestyle tips at drstephenlin.com or via at Dr. Stephen Lin on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Stephen. How are you? Oh, thanks, Andrew. I'm really, really well. How are you going? Really good. Now, last time we podcasted, we explored some of the functional aspects of dentistry and indeed evolution. But today I want to explore something that we eat every day, we take for granted. Modern medicine will tell us that we get ample of but indeed we're seeing issues with, and that's the fat-soluble vitamins. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we kind of covered a, a big topic last time in terms of where jaw growth in our teeth and how orthodontic braces and, and crooked teeth aren't just, you know, we're not just fixing misaligned dentitions. We're actually dealing with jaws that, that also house jaw uh, airways. Um, but what I've really kind of looked into is, is you know, what are the what are the bodily processes that cause our jaws to grow? And what do we remove that have stopped our jaws from growing? Because we're really in an orthodontic epidemic now, and and we can nearly track it directly to what we eat. Well, when you say what we eat, you know, most people would think about jaw growth, and they'd be thinking minerals, not fat soluble vitamins. When we're thinking fat soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K, what's so important about them, and indeed, where are the issues? Yeah, exactly. We, we we do have a bit of a focus on minerals, and that is the problem. But what really, uh, if you look at what we eat and and, and the nutrients that uh, the human body needs, it's how we manage these minerals. And our body has these amazing systems to actually uh, absorb, transport, and place minerals. But we have to eat the right nutrients, and the, uh-huh. the fat soluble vitamins are the, are the they're the key factors in getting your body doing these things. And I think we've misunderstood this in a way. And for growing strong jaws and teeth, they're the key nutrients. You're indeed right. We, we concentrate on calcium, but then we know, and it's medically accepted, that vitamin D helps with calcium placement. But indeed, there's other things that help in that, and not just calcium, but of course, other minerals. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the calcium issue, you know, it really is at, at the core of, you know, w- w- you know when we're managing uh, bones and, and tooth mineralization, you know, how your body man- manages calcium really shows you, you know, whether you're um, you know, whether you're getting enough of these nutrients. And 
when you talk about vitamin D, you know, this is exactly you know the, the um, you know, getting to the root of the problem. You know, and we really haven't uh, had a great understanding of vitamin D up until quite recently. And the, the research on vitamin D has really streamed out over the last two decades. But before that, you know, we, we, our our knowledge of vitamin D um, was really simply just based on its role in calcium in terms of, you know, when we are vitamin D deficient, we'll only absorb 10 to 15% of uh, calcium from our uh, from our intestines. Uh, but it goes far beyond that as well, and it actually doesn't act alone. So even testing vitamin D alone, which is important, uh, doesn't give us a full picture on how our body is distributing calcium. Without throwing hundreds of dollars at, at testing, I, like I, I, I do remember there was somebody who used to, like they, I think it was $400 odd worth of testing. It was a lot of money, doctor, placing doctors in a very awkward position in Australia with regards to Medicare. How do you do appropriate testing and what testing do you recommend? I do recommend vitamin D testing and there are different options and there are still options where we can get um, vitamin D testing under Medicare uh, and, and that's usually when it's associated with another condition, which it always, always is. Uh, so that's the current state we're at. Um, and and we, do, we do unfortunately have a little bit of a... Uh, where physicians have been placed under a bit of pressure because of this cost. So I think in Australia, we really need to move towards a cost effective measure and where we can test everyone um, and there are some good companies coming out now where we can do some blood prick tests and, and test vitamin D uh, which should be coming out and unfortunately we, we don't have um, you know some of the options that they do in the US and UK uh, but vitamin D testing in my opinion is one of the most important measures we should be keeping an eye on because everyone is different um, and if you're not getting uh, a lot of direct sunlight and even in the winter months, you know, you, you simply not, you don't have enough. And when I started testing my patients, I found that nearly all were deficient and all related to their dental disease. Um, there are some cheap vitamin D tests around now. Yeah, no, there certainly are. Um, and I think we're going to find that they are more available coming out. Um, and and I, I do think that, uh, you know, there's, you know, there should be a role of both, um, you know, self-testing, but also, uh, you know, alongside physician and, as you say, user pays. Um, but also, I think, you know, I don't know if we use our vitamin D levels right. Uh, you know, so, you know, just testing and getting a level may not be it's not useful. We're really not understanding this fat-soluble vitamin system. I think that's really, um, you know, potentially at the, the root of this problem is that, you know, we've got these levels and we've got tests that are costing us money, but are we really doing the right things to address that? So when you're saying address that, you mean use the right tests? Well, not so. I mean, not so much tests. Um, so, for instance, um, there was a study in 2011 that showed that uh, I mean, one of the most well-known applications of vitamin D uh, supplementa supplementation, for instance, uh, is for osteoporosis. And so, they tested uh, the osteoporotic women who were taking the vitamin D supplements with calcium, and they actually had an increased risk of heart disease. And so, those oh, right, that, yes. those that, yeah, those studies are no longer um, ethical because of the, the increased risk of cardiovascular events. And so there was really a, um, you know, a kind of a, a moment there where we realized that, you know, maybe vitamin D isn't the only picture with calcium. And, you know, if people are having increased heart attacks, and they weren't having increases in bone density, by the way, 
So we were giving them vitamin D and calcium supplements. They were having no increase in uh, bone density, but they were having cardiovascular events. So there's show that there was some more to the picture here, and I think that really kind of gets to the root um, problem here is that we're not understanding this system. This is very typical of medicine. They want one magic thing to do a, a magic job. And I remember the, the study they used, um, what was it, 1,600 milligrams of calcium citrate. So they're using mm. one form of calcium. It is well absorbed. It's certainly better than calcium mm. carbonate. Um, mm. But it's one form of calcium. It's not the breadth of minerals that's found in bone. The other thing was that it was a very low amount of vitamin D that they gave. Calcium is sort of like, um, to me, it's a canary. This issue with vitamin D, with uh, calcium, forgive me, uh, and cardiovascular disease, to, to me, that raises a red flag with inflammation. Absolutely. You know, the using that, that term as a canary, is, I think it is, is excellent because it really shows that, you know, we've been trying, you know, giving people calcium supplements. If you think about the body, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, why not get their systems so they're using calcium in the appropriate way? And like you say, inflammation, um, underlying gut inflammation, underlying um, liver or kidney issues will, will mean that they won't absorb vitamin D in the first place. So yeah. why aren't our vitamin D levels uh, high enough in, or, or getting to the blood levels that we need and being used by the body? But what are also the other levels, uh, the other parts of um, this system that, that distribute calcium alongside vitamin D, we haven't even considered them whatsoever. I think one of the other issues, of course, is the sloth mentality. You know, you take a tablet and you want it to do all the good. It's kind of like, you know, giving an astronaut a calcium supplement and saying, there you go, your bones are going to be okay. Yeah, this is it. You know, the, um, it, it's you know, probably the calcium, uh, the, the way we approached calcium came from the Ricketts approach you know, back in the uh, you know, late 1800s and early 1900s where, you know, kids weren't growing uh, their femur bones, you know, because of uh, lack of vitamin D, mm. and we simply, um, you know, it was the cod liver approach that uh, that cured that epidemic, and you know, we kind of just struck that off as you know, vitamin D and calcium, and then um, you know, the the forward moving movement of osteoporosis was, you know, vitamin D was, uh, you know, thought to be the only factor, but there's more to it. So with regards to more to it, we've got another fat-soluble vitamin, which, of course, is really, you know, one of the late-breaking heroes, and that's vitamin K. But then there's different forms. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this kind of goes back to what uh, Western A. Price wrote about. You know, he was kind of saying in the 30s, you know, after we'd had this rickets epidemic, that, well, these traditional societies, they ate these diets rich in these three factors, and it was vitamins... A and D, which he identified, you know, he went back to his lab for years after traveling around the world. But then Activator X, which he wrote about, he couldn't identify and he died. His work was um, left as Activator X as these three factors that were you know, sometimes 10, 20 times uh, richer in traditional diets than the, what uh, his patients were eating back in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm. And, you know, it, for 70 years, we didn't know what Activator X was. And, you know, that really was. A, a huge misnomer, I think, as to why Price's work wasn't understood is because it wasn't until 2007 that Chris Masterjohn put it together and said, well, hang on, and they looked through some evidence going back through uh, just some Japanese studies, uh, but also just some uh, quite obscure uh, physiology around vitamin K and found that there's actually two of them. And that vitamin K1, the one that we know that uh, is involved in blood clotting, uh, is, is one molecule called the filoquinones, but the menaquinones 
uh, was actually the molecule the price was talking about and that was rich in these vitamins, in these diets. And menaquinones have a completely different role to filoquinones. And this is now we're getting into the into the, you know, what we're talking about in terms of calcium distribution because they activate proteins in the body that carry calcium. It's one of the most obvious and yeah. yet misunderstood um, uh, physiological processes is that you know once vitamin D absorbs and gives us all the um, you know, calcium that we need, um, vitamin K2 has to activate the proteins, osteocalcin and matrix GLA protein, to one, take the calcium into bones, which is osteocalcin primarily, but matrix GLA protein needs to go around and pick up the calcium out of our soft tissues. So if we're throwing vitamin D and calcium into uh, our, our patients, we're absorbing some calcium, but it's going into our vessels and soft tissues where it shouldn't be, in, and we're having cardiovascular events. Did vitamin K2 become evident to us because of the work of Western A. Price, and they were looking at this fact, activating factor X? Well, it's one of the most misunderstood vitamins, I think, of the, we'll see in the 20th century, but I think ever. Um, so we, we identified it in the, in the 1920s and 30s. So it was uh, identified as a chemical molecule, but it was so similar to the vitamin K1 that we put it into one category as vitamin K. Yeah, but they're that's two right. different. Yeah, they're two different things. And then yeah, at Harvard in the 70, in 75, they picked up that osteocalcin was this protein that was vitamin K activated. And then in the 90s, we found MGP protein. So it was a very pieced puzzle along the way. And then they found that uh, the MGP protein prevented uh, arterial calcification. But we still didn't connect to that fact that there were two vitamin K molecules and that they, they did different things in the body. And so that wasn't until 2007. And that's, it was kind of this huge culmination of looking at Price's work, but then all this vitamin K, uh, very kind of in-depth chemical. Uh, uh, it's a very specialized area of chemistry. So I think only a very small group of chemists really understood the molecule. And then putting that together with what Price saw and to understand that K1 and K2 are very different. You know, when I did nursing, there was vitamin K. That's it. There was no K2. Mm. It was just vitamin K. That was its name. And that's all it's for, you know, clotting. And that's what you use it for. And you give Kanakian to a baby when they're born. End of story. Mm -hmm. And even now you'll get medical professionals that are not aware of vitamin K2 and they will automatically assume that vitamin K is one entity and it's for blood. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the, the, the name K, K itself is, you know, Flawed because you know they really are two separate molecules. Um, you know they, they behave very differently. They're, they're related, but you know uh, we haven't been uh, taught the physiology of K2, and it's, it's all there in, in, in the literature. We know what it does in the body, but we simply have not been taught how it connects to one uh, bone mineralization and tooth mineralization, but also soft tissue pre the prevention of soft tissue calcification. Right. So do you find that it has a role in gingivitis as well, or is it mainly to do with just that remineralization of teeth? Yeah, so it, it's got, a, you know, we could pretty much call, rename, if we're going to go and rename it, you know, the dental vitamin, <laughs> because it is just magic in the mouth. K2, when, when, when my patients start to eat K2, when they, uh, you know, when we start to introduce it back, and there's actually something very interesting, is that there's an observation you see in in dental patients, that is one of the, I think one of the most 
cardinal signs that we're not getting enough K2 potentially. And that's actually calcification of dental plaque, so dental calculus. So people who get that a big buildup on the back of their lower teeth, mm. um, if you run your tongue along there, and that's the, the stuff you get cleaned off um, at, at your dental prophylaxis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people have a very uh, – certain people have a very illogical buildup of this dental calculus, and it's caked on and sometimes completely covering the tooth for two, three, four, five centimetres. Um, oh. And there's no explanation in dental literature why some people would have a, you know, a bigger buildup of this calcified plaque you know, besides the fact that they don't brush and floss. And you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I've seen patients who have very good oral hygiene but have this amazingly uh, persistent and uh, you know, large buildup of dental calculus. And it is a lack of vitamin K2. Their body can't place calcium into into the bones. You really did blow my mind with our last podcast. You were talking about things that I just thought weren't possible. And one of the things that you really woke up in me was the immune system of the teeth. So mm. are you saying, therefore, that calcium is being the canary because, it A, it can't be placed to where it should be and so it's settling out in places where it can't? Well, it's settling down as plaque because of an aberrant immune response or a problem with the, the microbiota of the, the oral cavity? Well, there's a, two, there's a two-pronged front there, and this is really the kind of the, the central dogma of, of oral health is that you know, our bacteria in the mouth are the uh, kind of the outside, the environmental dictators of the oral environment. Mm. And you know, we have probiotic bugs in there that are protecting its species, so a diverse oral microbe biome, just like a diverse gut microbiome, yep. is what promotes oral health. That's part one. But part two is that the body and every tooth has its own immune system. And this immune system, so every, um, every uh, tooth has a, a junction between the enamel, which is the hard outer coating, and the dentine, which is the inner coating. And the enamel is the mineralized. It doesn't have cells. It's not alive um, as such. But so what, what the dentine has is it, it has a, uh, a blood supply and a nerve supply uh, from the dental pulp. And there are actually um, cells called odontoblasts that sit down at that uh, dental enamel junction. And they're like kind of the, the SWAT police of the, of the tooth. But the odontoblasts are run by vitamin A and D. So if you don't have enough vitamin uh, D and A, you're not activating this osteoimmune system that is defending your... Your, t- your teeth. And so odontoblasts will actually release the, the, uh, the proteins, uh, MGP protein and osteocalcin. And so if you don't have K2, they can't release the immune factors that protect against your tooth against any invading bacteria. So you have an inbuilt defense system in there but that is run by vitamin A, D, and K2. So that's why people wow. today have... You know, we have rampant tooth decay because we don't have that inner defense system. We, we've got an imbalanced oral microbiome, and then the, the whole thing's out of whack. Mm. Do you have to have preformed retinol, um, as in like topical exposure, or can it just be absorption th- from diet? Uh, you know, a, a good dose of carrots, and if you're that way inclined, you can have some lamb's fry. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, no, ex- exactly. You, you've you've um, hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, so preformed. Price did find that the preformed vitamin A, and we know that there are absorption issues with uh, preformed vitamin A. Uh, certain people don't convert it well, and so it seems that we do need um, a, 
a, a dietary source of preformed vitamin A, so it's being delivered to the teeth. And um, and vitamin A has, plays a crucial role in things like jaw jaw growth and clefts and facial growth as well. So it's all interconnected. So we know that vitamin A plays a role in, in cleft, cleft lips and palate. Um, and there seems to be a role in these midline deficiencies with vitamin A because our, our knowledge of the physiology of vitamin A isn't, isn't very detailed. You know, there are you know, many, many different vitamin A receptors. So how it works in the body and how it signals facial growth, we understand that, that it works in these processes. And we understand that, for instance, uh, in clefts and cleft lifts, vitamin A uh, is a factor. But we, we don't go into much depth into, for instance, going further into understanding how how it, it relates to, for instance, malocclusion, um, but also jaw growth um, as a whole. Look, again, glad you mentioned it because I, like, I constantly am dumbfounded by the paranoia about vitamin A. Yes, vitamin, mm. high doses of vitamin A are teratogenic and, mm-hmm. and cause all sorts of issues. But there's an international vitamin A working group, or, or um, mm. an IVAG paper on vitamin A, and it states that 10,000 IU can be given at any stage of pregnancy, regardless of existing status of vitamin A. And indeed, I, I remember reading a paper of 15,000 IU was preventing um, facial cleft um, deformities. But there seems uh, to be uh, this area above where we don't know what happens. Then it becomes a problem. So what's your experience? Mm. Well, I mean, so the thing is with vitamin A and A, D and K2, they all work together. Uh-huh. So that we, we create need in the body for, um, for vitamin A when, when we, when we um, ingest vitamin D. And this was Price's entire uh, you know, theory and observational uh, with what he looked at in terms of the, the dietary aspect of dental growth was that these three vitamins work together. And if you look in terms of, you know, going back to our calcium distribution problem, you, uh, you can probably see, you know, vitamin D as being kind of the, the, the materials truck pulling up to a, um, a house construction site. And then kind of vitamin A activates all the osteoclasts and the cells to turn over um, all the workers to, to bring the materials into the into the uh, job, but then K2 activates, you know, it's kind of the, the water into the into the cement mixer. So without K2, we don't activate the materials to actually put it into the house. But you need all three together, and they work in this beautiful synergy all over the body. Vitamin A and vitamin D have, you know, they activate uh, genes, at, at both with the VDR receptor, but both interacting with each other as well. So mm. a vitamin D will, will activate... Um, a certain gene, but it will also depend on vitamin A as well. And I've got to say, I, I wanted to do a call out before because the the brilliant work of with regards to vitamin D from Professor Michael Hollick, elucidating mm. its other actions in the body outside of bone. Absolutely, and and this is really what the last ten years of, um, well, you know, the last two decades really of research that has shown us is, you know, we can link vitamin D deficiency deficiency to digestive issues, to immune issues, to metabolic issues, right through to the brain and Alzheimer's disease. And we're talking about you know, these VDR receptors being on two to 3,000 genes. So there are genes sitting there and waiting for vitamin D, and yet you know, some close to 75% of us are what we would classify insufficient. And you know, it's just insane that we have not had this conversation in more depth. Well, indeed, you know, in Australia, there's still this pervasive attitude that anything above 50 is fine 
Indeed, if mm, you're at if absolutely. you're at fifty, you're fine. That's optimal, which mm. is not. That's the lower limit of acceptability. Um, mm. And they're fine. You know, they're, they're, there's people that like. I think it's the osteoporosis um, society finally sort of saying, no, look, we really should be looking at seventy five. But then there's mm-hmm. other work. Indeed, Michael Hollick did work showing um, um, African tribesmen. They had levels of 220 nanomoles per litre. The recommendations of vitamin D levels, when you really look at them, they don't have a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of logic there. You know, like you say, that, you know, we were, um, we're generally hovering around the 50 stage across the board now. Um, but, you, you know, there's, there's one Canadian study in a thousand school kids, and they showed that the level, uh, the risk of tooth decay uh, increased below 50, but all, there was also a relative um, risk between 50 and 75. Oh, really? So, yeah, so the, and, and that comes up also in, in studies like Alzheimer's as well, is that there, mm. is a, um, you know, there is a relative risk as we, as we decrease our levels, um, uh, as the levels drop. Yeah, and so, MS. Yeah, well, exactly. There's exactly. a world map of multiple sclerosis and the, the higher latitudes and the higher the risk of MS. It's really that simple. I don't understand why this hasn't been uh, better communicated. And and for one, in the in the dental industry, you know, I, I think dentists should be probably at the forefront of, of um, managing vitamin D because of what we know of what it does in the mouth. Yet it does not. Um, it, it just has not uh, propagated in, in you know in, in how we practice or even our understanding of, of what it does in the mouth. I've got to say though, you you really opened my eyes once again about stop using these things in isolation. Um, because, you know, if, if we're just going to go, oh, there we go, um, um, an intervention of, let's say, 4,000 IU of vitamin D, well, it might raise vitamin D, but does it change the outcome of disease? Maybe the issue is that you're being too, too simplistic and you're not giving, you know, K or vitamin A with it, K2, I should say, um, or vitamin A with it as well. Absolutely. And the, the fat soluble system, you know, really is a system in that. And we've really misunderstood. This goes right down to our uh, measurement of blood cholesterol. Blood cholesterols are, you know, the, uh, our lipoproteins are what carry these vitamins around the body. Mm. And so, you know, without, for instance, taking a vitamin D supplement with a fatty meal, and that's probably likely even with the saturated fat, um, a, a decent percentage of saturated fat in that milk, we're unlikely to absorb this nutrient from the get-go. So, you know, how we're, how we're recommending that these supplements are taken and what they're taken with, um, at, for instance, a vitamin D supplement should never be taken without a K2 supplement full stop, but we don't get this message. And there are um, some brands out there now, they, they put it all together, they put D3, um, they'll put K2, magnesium and, and calcium. Um, so we are, it is getting there, mm. but it's been a very, very slow message and a lot of physicians aren't aware of this and unfortunately a lot of dentists as well. But of course we should always be you know, favoring diet over supplements. So how do you access this with your patients about correcting the the real problem, which is their dietary intake? Absolutely. And, and that's always the baseline uh, moving forward. Uh, you know, that we we have a, a, a system here that is waiting for this stuff. These are the most crucial nutrients, in my opinion. Mm. When you shape a diet around the fat-soluble vitamin, everything falls into place. Right. And if you kind of think of the physiology, you know, it, it does... It makes a lot of sense, in, you know, because they're actually the hardest nutrients to get in the diet. And so traditional societies always treasured these foods that were rich in fat-soluble vitamins because you have to treat them well or you don't get them. And yeah. we're talking things like, uh, you know, amazing grass-raised butter, 
um, things like organ meats, which, you know, as you said, the lamb fry up, you know, uh, a slice of um, organ meat or a, a dishes that contain organ meats have been treasured in every society around the world. But things like eggs, things like um, uh, fermented foods such as uh, Japanese natto, high in K2, these are cheeses and, and full-fat dairy. Mm. These are foods that have been treasured you know, for many, many thousands of years. And the reason is because if you don't treat them right, our, our modern dairy fruits would have very little vitamin K2 and likely vitamin D unless it's fortified because our animals aren't, uh, they're not receiving, for instance, the uh, precursors of uh, sunlight, um, preformed vitamin A and K1 through grass, through eating grass. Okay, a couple of questions here. Firstly, um, it's been um, shown that the major impact of changing a vitamin D is really behavioural. We need to be eating lunch or at least five minutes of lunch outside and exposing the upper parts of our body, even if it's just the arms and, you know, the, the top part of our, our chest, the neck area. People eat lunch indoors. That, mm-hmm. that, I think that's been shown pretty well. Notwithstanding that we do get vitamin D from food. Vitamin K, however, is very interesting. Now, I don't like liver. Steak and kidney pie, you got, I remember vomiting up into the bowl. So, so for <laughs> those of us that don't like organ meats, where do we get vitamin K2? So grass-fed uh, butter, so dairy, uh, can, if, if, you, if you do tolerate dairy, if it's grass-raised, you, it will have K2 because the cows uh, eat the, the grass which has K1 in it. Um, things like fermented foods will give the MK7 version of vitamin K2, so sauerkrauts, uh, and they have to be fermented and, and quality, uh, but Japanese natto is one of the richest sources of the MK7 vitamin K2. Uh, we have, there are certain foods, I mean, kefir is a great one as well. Um, eggs, so a few eggs a day, uh, as long as they're, the chickens are pastured and they've um, you know, kind of been running around eating seeds and yeah. bugs, yeah. they have K2 as well. You mentioned cheeses before. Is there any ch- certain yeah. cheeses that are higher in K2? Yeah. The brie and gouda are both rich in, in K2 and that's the MK7 form because it's a fermentation process. So there is a bacterial uh uh, mode of, of K2 synthesis. You've got the MK4s, which are found in the animal products because they're converted from, um, uh, from from the K1, but the MK7s are actually um, bacterial derived. So you find these in cheeses, which is fermented, gotcha. your uh, sauerkraut, natto, fruit. And so it is a, it's a very small set of foods, actually, that have K2 in it. So it's really, really important that we focus on them. And that's what societies have always done. And when organ meats are actually, um, I, I get what you're saying there, <laughs> it was an adjustment for that. <laughs> but there is a way to work it in. I mean, uh, you know, for instance, if creating mints with you know just having a bit of a few slices of organ meat, you can hide it um, in a bolognese, for instance. That's I, I get my patients to do that, especially with kids as well. Um, a, a slice of liver just has the full spectrum of these nutrients. Um, and you know it, it is difficult to get. So, and we've just had these these foods in our history for a very very long time. So I think a slight readjustment in that sense is important. Um, but there are other dietary sources as well. I like the thought of hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what about things like vitamin A, of course? We talk about preformed vitamin A, and you get that in high amounts in liver. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, what about carrots? What about vegetable sources? Well, vegetable sources have that preformed uh, vitamin to the beta carotene. Beta carotene. So yeah. our, body, our body will convert a certain amount, but also there are certain people, depending on their, uh, there are certain genes that will depend on how well we convert our beta carotene, whether we eat it with fat so that the rest of your diet, so a higher fat diet is, uh, is crucial for this as well because these vitamins are fat soluble. So we need to be eating a lot of fats, and this includes the saturated fats, you know, to what we uh, would normally in our diet, in a modern uh, Western diet, in order to absorb these properly. So there's studies that show that if you eat a salad uh, with fat, you're going to absorb more uh, of the beta carotene. That's simply because of the the fat-soluble nature of their molecules. Um, I was going to make another point, and, and that is for those listeners that might not be able to to handle something like lamb's fry, you know, the, the lamb liver, um, or steak and kidney pie, that sort of thing, then even things like chicken liver, like the pâtés, they're much more dietarily yeah. accepted in those, for, for a lot more people. So even things like chicken liver can help with vitamin K and, and um, vitamin Absolutely, A. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, duck and goose liver are, uh, pates are, are really high in K2, and you know you can you can um, kind of salt them and and uh, give them a bit of a taste. And ki- kids tend to like them too, so that's one. Pates are good for kids as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's definitely a. a they also have the desiccated liver tablets, but I don't know. I just think that you know we should try and at least have you know one meal a week. <laughs> to yeah. Get this. But the thing is too is that when you understand what what it does in the body and I'm not sure if you've tried a, a slice of um, grass-raised liver wrist. It's it's like a strong, strong coffee. Mm. Like your body is really happy when you're eating this stuff, um, and you know you feel a million bucks. You know, a liver cooking turmeric and um, you know a nice butter and and, and coconut oil. I really it, it, think it, I would have to cook it with some flavouring. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I you know like a, a bolognese in a mint. You know, you, you could you you would completely not notice it there. <laughs> mm. oh, well, well, look, these are the things that we need to do for our patients. And I think anything that we can do to increase them, great. Yeah, we've we really not had this conversation that these foods are important. So, you know, that's the first step is that we need to understand which of the foods and why we need them. So it, it, there's not a lot of this information out there, unfortunately, for our patients. And so I think that really is a, a big first step. And these are covered in your book, The Dental Diet, yeah? Exactly. So there's a 40-day meal plan uh, in the dental diet to reintroduce these these traditionally ancestral based foods in a modern world, um, you know, both for taste and also convenience. When you reinstitute the intake of these vitamins in your diet, I would hope that you don't have to supplement, but maybe there's this short term period where you might do an emergency sort of supplementation phase. Do you do that? Yeah, generally with patients, I find that the dietary changes are, are certainly long-term, but for, for healing of certain conditions, their supplementation is needed. And things like uh, cod liver oil tablets and also emu oil is a great source of AZNK2, one of the richest, actually. We're very lucky here in Australia. Um, it's one of the richest sources of M- the MK4. So these, uh, they're dietary supplements. They are needed in certain situations. And because of all the physiological processes that happen to convert vitamin D, many people with digestive issues or metabolic issues or kidney or liver issues will take a long time 
for their levels to lift up and we need to monitor and they sometimes do need to supplement with higher doses. Uh, people with sleep apnea, for instance, have been shown to have low vitamin D um, and it does take time to, to re-establish a good gut microbiome that can absorb it all and get things moving back. And once people correct their intake and have adequate amounts of these vitamins, how quickly do you find a resolution or at least a, a mitigation of their conditions. I mean, you know, sleep apnea is something very, very serious. Mm. I wouldn't be relying on just a little bit of supplementation to look at to cure this. So, what do you do? No, no, absolutely. The, the, the dietary change is is significant, and it is usually a significant lifestyle shift that we need to get people off harmful foods. For one, you know, the sugars, the flowers, the vegetable oils. These are all things that are stopping us from absorbing these nutrients in the first place. Um, but once we replace, and if we can get people eating a, a nutrient-dense uh, and fat-soluble nutrient-dense diet, in kids especially, we see a rebound you know, nearly immediately. It's, it's quite amazing that you know, their bodies just appreciate so much when they begin to eat foods that are actually giving them what they need to grow and develop. Uh, in people with, with sleep apnea, I've seen very, very good results, for instance. Um, people with sleep apnea often have chronic gum issues because uh, there's a breathing slash inflammation thing going on in the body. Yeah. Um, you know, and these periodontal issues will not be resolved, you know, just by scraping the teeth by through through periodontal um you know treatments and treatment. regimes. And so yeah, so when we get the vitamin D levels up, when we change their diet, all of a sudden their inflammation levels in their mouth have um resolved and their sleep is starting to get better. And so they're on a track to getting better and they're eating better and they feel a lot better as well. Now, you mentioned kids there. I have to ask, with regards to A, D, E, and K, I'm thinking maybe particularly A, D, and K, but what about growing pains? Yeah, well, exactly. And, and you know, there's a lot of things like, um, you know, tooth eruption, you know, thyroid issues, like you mentioned, hormonal issues. Vitamin D is completely fundamental in, um, you know, in managing the, the hormonal systems in the body. So... These are vitamins that kids drastically need. If you test kids, especially the kids that I've seen with dental disease, they are always at dangerous levels of vitamin D. So this is goes across the full spectrum of conditions. And when we're talking about growth and development, they're absolutely fundamental. You know, we've got a, a scourge of obesity in, in the community and particularly in our kids. 20% of our kids are overweight. I would imagine a rather big backlash from, from the orthodox um, sector of the community, of the medical community, saying, how could you recommend high-fat diet in kids that are overweight? How would you answer that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that the problem with this is that the evidence heavily suggests that the, uh, you know, the simple refined carbohydrates in, in, in terms of sugar and especially fructose that kids are consuming now is driving um, you know, the, the increase in obesity and also even type 2 diabetes in younger and younger people. So removing sugars is almost agreed across the board uh, as being the, um, you know, the approach to, to this. But you know, one big problem, and I think we're kind of in a gray zone with dietary recommendations now, is that we don't know what to replace with. Mm. And we've now established you know, the whole saturated fat conversation. We've had that. You know, we need to really, because you know, uh, these foods that we're, talk, we're talking about do contain high levels of saturated fat. But the evidence has shown that the reason why we were hiding from these foods in the first place, you know, weren't grounded in good science in the first place. So the saturated fats don't cause 
uh, obesity. They don't cause heart disease. You know, we need to straight up say that. We need to have that conversation and turn this kind of uh, dietary confusion that we've had around. And, you know, the, the really kind of scary thing too is that when you kind of track what we did in terms of what Western A. Price was writing about in the 30s and 40s, uh, then what we did in the 60s and 70s in terms of removing these saturated fats, these are the foods that are rich in fats all the vitamins. We directly advised against them. Mm. Uh, and this is the reason why. So we, we've taken the exact opposite route of what <laughs> we, we, what we knew developed yeah. dental arches and, and, and the result has been the type 2 diabetes epidemic, the obesity epidemic. We're now walking into behavioral epidemics and sleep apnea epidemics. And, you know, so that we've got our answer you know we've we've had an experiment on on ourselves it's time to to turn that around Stephen and I think the way to turn around is certainly to start reading your book and I'm going to The Dental Diet An Exploration of Evolutionary Diet Genetics and Nutritional Medicine brilliant I want one (laughs) (laughs) Stephen I I can't thank you enough for taking us through um, the dietary sources the issues that can be corrected um, by concentrating on a fat-soluble diet and getting enough um, fat-soluble vitamins in our, back into our diet. Can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's an absolute pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by The Dental Diet, the surprising link between your teeth, real food and life-changing natural health by Dr. Stephen Lynn. It's available now And for more information, go to drstephenlin.com.